Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July the 1st, 2013, and uh, this is episode 1160 of the Survival Podcast. And I am just back in from my trip to Des Moines, Iowa. I had a great time with you guys up there. Everybody that came out, thank you for taking your time out of your day Come be with me and spend time with me, whether at the event, after the after, at the after hours mixers, or both. Anyway, it is a Monday, so it's time for your e- emails. Those are emails that you guys send to me. Email address to be uh, part of a show like this is jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Please don't forget the the or the the, depending on what part of the country you grew up in. It is thesurvivalpodcast.com. If you send an email to survivalpodcast.com, it will go to some ass clown brand pirate uh, who wants me to pay $5,000 for a domain name that only has value because, well, I created the value in the brand. So don't do that. It's thesurvivalpodcast.com. Uh, before we get into your emails today, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Make sure the show's for you here Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. If you needed proof that it's a good idea to store ammunition, ammunition components, etc., because there could be shortages in the future, the last uh, six months has been a pretty good indicator that that is indeed the case. As ammo prices begin to fall, be selective. Pick the things that uh, are coming back in stock fastest and continue to uh, increase your storage of ammunition. That way, the next time this happens, you can sit on the sidelines and not care. That's what we need to do. Remember, uh, ammunition is the other precious metal. Copper, jacketed, lead, a great place to get your ammo with great service, great shipping, and great pricing. BulkAmmo.com. Next up today... Safe Castle Royal, also known as the original survival podcast sponsor. And I say original because if uh, if you went back way, way, way to the beginning, to the first time that there was ever actually any sponsors of the survivalpodcast.com, uh, you would find that uh, the very first one was Safe Castle Royal. That was over four years ago now. Folks... To have sponsorship in the podcast industry that sticks with you for four years and says, I'll be here for a lot longer, is not typical. I think we find that with all of my sponsors, but uh, definitely with Save Castle, the original sponsor. And they also support the Member Support Brigade as well. Remember, they have a discount buyer's club. It's $49 lifetime membership discounts on everything they sell from that point forward. And guess what? You get that membership for free if you join my Member Support Brigade. That means your uh, your first year of Members Brigade costs a buck. That's a great uh, sponsor with a lot of support for the community. Check them out today at safecastle.com. You can also find them at prepare.pro because they're professionals at helping you prepare. Uh, next up, want to remind you guys about Walking to Freedom. I'm going to... Uh, when I get back, uh, when I get try, I'm going to try this week. It's probably going to be when I get back from Montana, though. I'm going to be gone all next week in Montana. There'll be shows here for you, though. Don't worry about that. Uh, to get out a, a major press release about Walking to Freedom, we'll have all of the voting wrapped up by then. The forum has really kind of taken shape now. If you've not gotten to be part of WalkingToFreedom.com yet, please get over there. We need you. We need your help for others who are looking to move to your state. 
to tell them what's good about it and what's not so good about it. And maybe what you like about it that they won't. This is about good matchmaking, help, helping people vote with their feet in this republic and say no to states like New Jersey and New York and California that continue to trample on the liberties of individuals and be completely irresponsible with their citizens' money. So let's go ahead and start the process of helping citizens vote with their feet. And even if you're going to stay where you are for the rest of your life, let other people know why. And help other people who might be good new members of your community figure out if it's the right place for them. Walkingtofreedom.com Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. Help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service. And first responders like paramedics, EMTs, and firefighters. All of you guys uh, qualify for a service discount. To obtain that discount, just send me an email before, uh, one more time before, not after you join, and uh, put service discount in the subject line, send it to jack at the survivalpodcast.com, and give me two or three sentences on who you are and what you're doing, or if you're prior service, uh, tell me who you are and what you did, and I'll send you a discount code that will make a great product even better and save you even more money to thank you for your service to our nation at home and or abroad. And with that, I do have the housekeeping wrapped up. I want to get into the show today right off the bat. I want to tell you, last Monday, um, I found out about a product, a product that sounded so cool, I immediately went out and spent with shipping about $145 of my own money on it. It was called the Yellow Jacket, uh, uh, Yellow Jacket uh, phone case for the iPhone 4 and 4S. And it was supposed to, I say supposed to, turn your phone basically into a stun gun. It was supposed to be a really great case. I'd say it was a really good case, okay? Not a really great case. There were two parts of the case they sent me extra parts for. That tells me right off the bat they're prone to failure. And when I look at them, I can see that they are. They are specifically the guard for the electrodes and the top piece that snaps on. Uh, so that tells me right off that those parts are prone to failure. Uh, it's also quite bulky, which I would give up for a good, effective stun gun. Here's the problem. And this is why I'm doing this as a lead story today. I don't want anybody that heard about this product to buy the damn thing right now. And I want to tell you some things about it. I want this product to be good. I want the gentleman that worked hard to put it together to make it better and make it something I can endorse. But right now, as far as a protective tool, it is a 100% certifiable piece of shit. It has absolutely no effectiveness whatsoever in stopping anybody from doing anything. It hurts just bad enough to possibly piss them off and make them beat the shit out of you worse. It is a complete and total utter failure as a defensive tool. I, I'm going to have to send an email to Stephen Harris to tell him that we are now 1-1-1 one, one, and one on predicting the viability of products prior to them actually touching our hands uh, when we disagree about it. Uh, the first was the uh, Oregon Power Now Chainsaw. I said thumbs up. He said thumbs down. Stephen Harris lost that debate. He was completely and totally wrong. The Oregon Power Now Saw is an awesome tool. So I was really happy about that. Then there was the Raven Mower, uh, the hybrid tractor that ran like an SUV, had a built-in 7,800-watt generator and cut grass and did all kinds of cool stuff. I actually went out and bought one. Steven and I both gave it thumbs up prior to actually seeing it. It looked awesome. It looked like it would work. It looked like there were, there were like 9 billion recalls on it. I returned it and bought a Husqvarna tractor. And if I want an extra generator, I'll just buy a dedicated tool. That's one we both got wrong -o. Steve looked at this tool 
this new cell phone case. It said, Jack, it's not going to work worth a damn. Spark gap's too narrow. I said, it can't be. He's like, people can fight through stun guns. And all. I'm like, look, a stun gun is not to take somebody out. It's not a cop's tool to incapacitate and apprehend. It's supposed to be a break contact tool. I couldn't for the life of me believe that these people that are behind this thing raised over $100,000 with an Indiegogo program, got all of this coverage, and nobody had actually tested this device on a human being to see if it actually freaking worked. So, a guy from Noble Mint, Noble Mint, who I'm talking to now about doing some kind of a discounter program or some kind of affinity thing for you guys with, uh, walked over and said, yeah, because I had I was like, somebody come get shocked with this. And I've been shocked with stun guns, and I don't like it, and I really didn't want to do it to myself. I've done it to myself since because it just doesn't really freaking matter. He came over, and we've got some video of this. I'll get this up this week sometime. And uh, he said, I'll do it. I'll get tased. And I'm like, well, it's not a taser. It's a stun gun, but if you're willing to do it. So I wanted to give it to him in the torso where it's supposed to be most effective. He said, do it in the arm first. So I did it, and he had, you know, he was kind of nervous about it. But when I did it, he's like, he's looked over, like, what? That's it? I mean, you get a little twitch in the arm, and it's, it doesn't feel comfortable. It feels about like it's supposed to be like a bee sting. Well, that's what it's like, not like a wasp sting, like a harmless little honeybee sting. If that, if that, more like a horsefly. It's meaningless. So we did it to him in the body, and it was also meaningless. And I thought, well, maybe. Maybe my compassion for a fellow human being meant I didn't really jam it into him and actually give it to him the way that I would. So I, I did on the set, and it did nothing. And multiple people got shocked with it after that, and nobody was incapacitated in any way, even Nurse Amy. Yes, Nurse Amy at the After Hours Mixer said, go ahead and do it on my arm. She rolled up her sleeve like it was a shot. It was enough that she got pissed off and cursed and stood up and yelled. But it, she, when, when it, when it, you know, she's like, that's, he's lying. It does hurt. And then, then she's like, but you know what? It wouldn't stop anybody from doing anything. It's not enough to even break contact. So it's a failure. It's a failure. It's a failure. Now, I have some ideas that I'll put out in the video how this product can be made to work and work well. I want it to work well. I want an army veteran who's put together a business to be successful. I wanted so much for this product to be a good product. Uh, that's why I didn't even ask them for a product for free to review. I went and spent my own money the day I found out about it. I was very excited about it. I risked having it seized by TSA by putting it in my check baggage. They didn't steal that, but they did steal my hairbrush. More on that at another time. Uh, but they didn't steal the case. It got there. I showed it to everybody. Everybody thought it was really cool. When I set it off, they're like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And as soon as we actually tried to use it for its intended purpose, we found it to be a complete, utter, and total failure. And I want to be clear. I don't just mean it doesn't work really good. I mean it doesn't work. It will do absolutely nothing under any circumstances to defend you from an attack unless it's a stupid person attacking you and maybe you brandished it with a threat and it might make somebody back off, but that's a big damn gamble because at that point you've given away the element of surprise and you're going to have less effectiveness with it not more. So do not buy it. I will put out a video. I will give my thoughts on how the entire thing could be redesigned and made effective and end up with about a two and a half inch spark gap with longer electrodes that don't freaking retract when you push them into a person so that they'll actually freaking work. But this thing is a certified piece of shit when it comes to being effective. What it does do 
is provide you a very expensive way to have 20 hours of backup power for your iPhone. And for that reason alone, and since I've already spent the money and I don't want to go through the hassle of returning it, I'll probably keep it. And hopefully the people behind the Yellow Jacket will make one that works and maybe one day in the future I can do a video showing the effectiveness between Generation 1 and Generation 2. But right now I have to say this one fails at all levels and I wanted to make sure I said that up front, not to bash the product, but just so that none of you spend your money based on my somewhat pseudo-implied recommendation because I said very clearly, don't buy this thing until I test it. So if any of you did, I'm sorry, but I want to head it off the past now and prevent it from ever happening uh, in the future. Let's move on to the next one. Okay, so next up, I've been telling you guys now for a while that one of the signs that our government knows that the eventual state of our economy is going to be economic collapse uh, and a revaluation of the currency is the continuous ramp toward more and more capital controls. What you're allowed to do with your own money. When you take money out of the bank, what you have to do to get it. Uh, changing the, and this was all done behind the scenes, and again, I don't know if anybody that's talked about this yet, changing the, the 401k plans in this nation largely to where none of them even have a cash option or a dollar-based fund money market account, uh, and forcing all of the safe money in our 401ks, which is trillions of dollars, into government debt to help turn over the debt, and that there's all different types of capital controls going in place. And whenever you see a government beginning the issuance of capital controls, it signifies economic problems. The thing is, our nation is the most intelligent police state that there is. They really are. I mean, for all the talk about dumbed-down Americans, when it comes to the people running this country, they, they kind of know what they're doing. Uh, they've got to totalitarianism and control down to a science and an art. Okay, so our overlords have learned the lesson of history not to avoid it, but to have greater control when the failures occur and to, in my opinion, anyway, this is my opinion. This is not fact right now. My opinion is that they are setting up to utilize the failure to increase totalitarian control. Uh, and many of them will get out of Dodge, but the people in government themselves will stay here and continue to reap whatever they can pull out of a dying economic system with an intent to reanimate Frankenstein's monster on the other side with a new paradigm. And that will be the currency revaluation. So what they're doing is, unlike the typical Argentine model, right? Argentinian model, the Russian model, when the Soviet Union fell apart, where you play checkers and you wait right up until everything falls apart, then you begin the issuance of capital controls to try to stop the flood of money out. Our government, for you know one of the few times it's smart enough to do it, is playing chess, and they're putting the capital controls in, in play on the board well in advance of the crisis. And I know you look at 2008 and go, that's a crisis. The type of crisis I'm talking about is much worse. It's what people see coming in the future due to our inability to service our own debt and due to runaway inflation, due to all the other pain and misery that will come when this cancer of fiat money eventually comes to a head. And I'm saying five to ten years at this point. So that gives them plenty of time to institute capital control, which means, again, ways to control how you are able to handle, manage, and move and withdraw your own money. That's what I'm talking about when I say a capital control. What are you allowed to do with your own money? With that in mind, please listen to the following.
The SEC is looking into some rule changes that would reduce the risk of sudden withdrawals in money market funds. For this installment of Investing 101, we're going to look at these money market funds, what they are, and how these proposed rule changes might affect you. We bring in Phil DeMuth, Managing Director of Conservative Wealth Management, to kind of walk us through. So let's start broad, and we'll kind of drill down. Phil, what exactly is a money market fund? Give me a, some size and scope on the business. Sure. They were developed in the 1970s to help uh, retail investors invest their cash and get a better return than they could get just on bank deposits. It's a you know, $3.6 uh, trillion industry. It's the lifeblood of the uh, economy. This is where big and small investors keep their cash. But ultimately, <clears throat> they involve putting together two things that don't go together very well a fixed $1 net asset value that never varies on the one hand, and that's tied to a short-term, ultra-short-term bond fund that does vary on the other. So most of the time, these things get along sort of okay. But in a crisis, it can be like putting together drinking and driving, and the whole thing can blow up. So that's why the SEC is so concerned. And the basis of their concern, as I understand it, is a lot of people just assume a dollar in is going to be a dollar out. And that's what they assume, but it ain't necessarily so. And we've seen cases where they have, quote, broken the buck, and that suddenly gets investors extremely concerned because this is what we thought was our safe money. And so all of a sudden you have a bank run. And then in an interdependent world, a bank run over here affects everybody else. And so you can have a huge problem like we had in 2008. How do they, what are they proposing to change and how would it impact investors? Well, they have uh, two ideas here, and one of them is for the big boys, the institutional investors, and the other one is for the little sort of mom-and-pop ordinary retail investors. For the big institutional investors, what they're proposing is that they're going to give up the fixed $1 net asset value. If you are a big institutional investor and you want to pull your money out in a crisis, you may not get a dollar in, a dollar out. You might have to settle for, you know, 99 cents, 98 cents, 97, whatever the market uh, will bear at that time. So they will know that going in, and they will calibrate their expectations accordingly. But for the ordinary retail investor, what they're going to propose is that during times of crisis, we'll get to keep the $1 net asset value, but they might put up a gate. So if there's panic in the streets, they might say, well, you can only take out $100,000 today. And anything beyond that, you're going to have to pay a penalty. It, you, uh, you might have to pay you know, 3%, 5% back to the fund just for the privilege of taking your money out today. So that's how they propose to you know, cut this baby in half during a time of crisis. Seems like everybody's going to give up something. What sort of advice do you, would you give to investors who are dealing with owning, buying, choosing money market funds? Well, my, uh, my advice is to keep your money market fund in a large, well-known institution. Uh, I, I know somebody who has a lot of money, and they keep it at the retail bank around the corner. And, you know, the bank looks like a Greek temple. It has columns out in front, and they probably think it's like Uncle Scrooge's uh, uh, money bin. But it's not that way. If that bank were to fail for any reason, 
uh, they're going to be, uh, nobody's going to care very much about it. But if you, have, you keep your money market uh, fund in a large institution that everybody's heard of as a national presence, suddenly you've got uh, the whole Congress will be concerned about it. Mm. So I think that there's safety in numbers here. Interesting. Well put. Phil DeMuth, thanks for coming on and, uh, and giving us your insights on money market funds uh, from Conservative Wealth Management. Uh, if it's not bad enough, those of you that have been listening to the show are probably pretty educated and you can see through some of the bullshit and the hype there. Let me add some of the things that I'll tell you that this tool won't. Uh, number one, the main reason that you would want to do this if you're the government is to cover your ass from the standpoint of FDIC. See, even though we consider, we call it money market funds, right? Generally, it's money market account. Um, this is not like a, a cash value mutual fund. This is actually a, an account with check writing privileges on it. It's, it's something that you would have an account and you could go down and, and write a check just like you would out of a checking account. As long as, long as you maintain minimal balances, you get um, a, a higher uh, interest rate than you would, which right now is absolutely not worth uh, putting your money at risk. It's not. There's no reason to have your money in a money market account right now unless you're in a business where that structure works from you from a, a tactical standpoint or you're holding it in a brokerage because you're a stock trader or something like that. Right now, the whopping extra interest that you'll get is, it, you know, if you, you'll push your interest rate up to about a half a percent on average. A half a point isn't worth it. You know, take, I mean, it's just not. I mean, there's, there's no reason to even be in a bank right now. With your cash, other than it's it's somewhat secure, it can't be stolen, and it's insured by FDIC. I mean, those are the reasons. There's no interest incentive at all. There's no interest. Let me say one more. There's no incentive from an interest standpoint at all to tie your money to a bank right now. None, zero. It might as well be zero percent interest. I mean, you're you're probably better off buying food with money right now than holding it in a bank. Other than you need some money for the future. But a half a percent doesn't mean a thing. It doesn't mean jack shit. So there's no reason there. Um, but here's the risk to the federal government. Let's say there's a crisis, and let's say people do run on their money markets, and they do pull their money out, and eventually the funds themselves collapse, and they can't pay. The interest is twofold. The first problem for the federal government is they're on the hook for the money up to $250,000 a depositor. Because this is not a mutual fund. They have to insure this. So if you lose your ass, you're going to turn to them and go, where's my money, assholes? Give it to me now, please. And under current regulations, they're obligated to crap the money and give it to you. Now, they may not have it. Maybe they could print it for you. But they got to come up with it by the agreement with the people of this country through the FDIC insurance program. Now, it doesn't mean it can't go broke, but it does mean they're, again, they're on the hook for it. So that's part of their problem. Then the other problem, they talk about this ultra-short paper. That's just like financial lingo to say short-term government bonds. 60, 90-day paper, some 30-day paper is what's held in there. A lot of times it's 90-day paper, but the fund's only holding it for 30 days. They're buying it before it expires from, from another fund, and they're shifting money around in a little Ponzi scheme. So what does it mean... If there's a run on money market accounts, in addition to the federal government having the shit up to $250,000 per depositor to cover the ass of the institution that can't come up with the money now under deposit insurance, it also means a run on short-term bonds from the U.S. government. What, what I'm saying is 
these 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 money market accounts are not just holding cash. The way they can pay you that extra half a point is they're buying 90-day bonds. Let's just say that. They're buying other things too, but let's just say 90-day U.S. government bonds. Well, <laughs> when you go to get your money out of there, they have a plan, right? The, the fund manager has a plan. That they, they, there's always going to be a certain amount of cash available to cover checks and deposits. The money comes in and goes out every day, and they have a certain float, and they have a certain fail-safe where we could have a little bit more than we expected, but we can cover it. Once they go past that, the only thing they can do to cover the payout is to trade the bonds to somebody else. And the only people that really deal in large volumes of these short-term bonds are other money market accounts who under a run would be doing the same thing. So what the government's saying is if you're a large depositor, we'll give you your money, but you might get, and he guy's like, well, you might get 99 cents in the dollar, you might get 98. No, you might get like 60. You might get 40. Toward the end, you might get nothing. They're basically setting it to where a large depositor has all of their money at risk except for the $250 of insurance, and they'll tell the people that are the little people we have to screw them in the end and make it okay. They're saying to you, you know, mom and pa, Joe Sixpack business owner that maintains money like this to do payroll and things like that, that wouldn't be considered a large depositor. Maybe you have a couple hundred thousand dollars in there, and a hundred thousand of it is just to float your weekly payroll. Or maybe your monthly payroll runs about 100k. I know that sounds like a lot to people, but if you start adding up, you know, 10, 20, 30 employees, it's still a very small business, the lifeblood of this country. And maybe at some point that business says, you know what, we want to make sure we can pay our people. I don't care if we have to run payroll uh, at a net zero out and pay them in cash, attach a stub to it, but we're going to make sure that for the next 60 days we can pay our people. So we're just going to get this money out. They're going to say to you, you can't have it all. You can only have up to 100 grand. If you want more, there's going to be a penalty. And these restrictions aren't that restrictive. I can actually, just like the tool did in the interview, I can make a case for why these make sense. To keep the whole ship from sinking at once. But remember the, pro the, the process that I keep telling you about of incrementalism. Okay? We're only wiretapping phone calls of people in this country who are not citizens that are making phone calls overseas to areas that we believe are risky for terrorism, President George W. Bush. I'm paraphrasing. That's basically what they put out. Yeah, we're doing it without a warrant, but we believe we're in our rights. We passed the, uh, 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 we passed the policy that says so. And then Congress comes and says, you need a FISA court. So they just ignore the FISA court. But it's only the, oh, gee, yeah, we're doing it with everybody's stuff. See, incrementalism, right? Where if it came out, what's come out in the last couple of weeks with the NSA scandal of rising phones, more on that in a bit, okay? But if all that came out, let's say around 2006, all of it, and we knew it was going on, but I mean, if we had the concrete evidence People would have went freaking ballistic. But because the, the privacy and the freedom and the liberty has been taken incrementally over time, people are becoming accustomed to having it happen. They're being led to it. They're doing this with capital controls. They're getting very smart. Very, very smart. Soon, if you want any amount of cash, they'll want to know why. I'm telling you it's going to happen. It'll be, it won't be any amount. You know, and it won't be if you go in with your paycheck with uh, a $800 paycheck and say I want to deposit $600, I want $200 in cash. It's not even going to raise an eyebrow. It'll get to the point, though, 
Where when you go to the bank and go, I'd like $1,000, they're going to be filling out a piece of paper on it. Or more accurately, entering it into a computer. That What's up with that? What's up with that? Why do you want a thousand bucks? It might actually get to a point where you are actually questioned what is the purpose of the withdrawal. Right? It'll be like boxes, tick the box. Payment of debt to keep on hand. Right? For payment with a little box next to that. For what? Who are you giving this money to? That's a thousand dollars we don't know about. And what they'll say is we need to plug the leaks of the tax system. Those people taking that thousand bucks out, it's their money. They've paid tax on it. We don't have any problem with them at all. That's not what we're worried about. We want to know about the people getting the money. Don't you worry, Mr. and Mrs. Bank account holder. We're not looking into what you're doing. When you spend money, it's not your obligation to see the tax. Even if it's sales tax, it's not your fault. It's up to the person you're buying from to report that money. There's nothing wrong with doing it in cash, but they're obligated to tell us. We just want to make sure that they are. The country's got economic troubles, you know. We can't have people cheating the system. This is, this is the direction this is going. This is just the latest example thereof. And if you believe it's okay and you believe there's nothing to worry about, there's nothing to see her here, Jam your head deeper in the sand, Mr. and Mrs. Ostrich. Or eat more of the pablum, Mr. and Mrs. Sheeple. This is writing on the wall. This is what I keep saying. There is no larger prepper today for a coming economic crisis than the federal government of the United States. And you might think that's a good thing because since they are in control, you would think that they're trying to avert the crisis. They're not trying to avert the crisis. The crisis is now etched in frickin' stone, okay? There's no backing out of this hole. Just because I tell you there's an energy boom coming and things like that, people keep emailing me, no, it's going to be awful. Yes, just not yet. Just not yet. That's all I'm saying. There's, I, I, I've said this, and some of you guys that are new need to go back and listen to stuff from 2008 and 2009. I've said this before and during the crisis. There will be one opportunity to load up the tables one more time in the casino, get everybody back all in, get everybody excited, get everybody happy, get everybody spending money, and then, when as a consequence of our behavior, the bottom falls out, those manipulators of the money and those in control of the government level have a plan for what to do with the crisis that they now know there's no way to avert and no way to avoid. So once we can't avoid a crisis, we might as well just get the most we can out of it. This is the plan. This is where we're headed. You need to protect yourself. And I'm not saying go down to the bank tomorrow and take $80,000 in cash out of the bank. I am saying you might want to think about using more of the money that's in the bank to pay the bills and some of the money that's coming into your hands through employment and business and other things, never putting it in there in the first place and getting a secure location to store cash and some gold and some silver. That's what I'm saying. And right now, store more cash than either of the other two. But what if the cash becomes worthless? We'll cross that bridge as we get there, folks. But there's going to be an interim. And when I say there'll be a time during this crisis, as it begins to melt down, an interim, where cash will be more, not less valuable. People say, how? How is that the case? Because when they exercise capital controls, and no one can get their hands on cash, for a time that will create a cash shortage, that will create the illusion of strength in cash, 
So cash will be taken in the marketplace at a premium for a period of time until the total bottom falls out and the money's revalued. How can I say that? Because we've seen it happen in places like Argentina. Before it burned, it had value. And even since the crisis, Fernando Aguirre, who lived there for 10 years of this crap, said one week all anybody wanted was gold. He said he saw guys lay down a gold chain and cut a certain number of links with a knife off to trade. Next week, all anybody wanted was cash. As these capital controls are exercised, they can actually create a premium on paper money. Does that mean everything you own should be in paper money? God, no. It means there's a place for everything. But it also means the money you think is safe because it's in the bank isn't necessarily safe because it's in the bank. You may have it. You just may not be able to access it. That's what I'm saying. Let's take another one. I'll tell you when you know you're dealing with a totalitarian state, when they stop trusting the people in their armed services. That's when you know. That's when you know. If you look at, for instance, Iraq, let's go way back. Let's go back to when Saddam Hussein still had a job, not when he was just still alive, when he still had a job, when he was still president-slash-dictator-slash-overlord of Iraq. And he was dealing with conflicts at different times with enemies. The United States, at one time Iran, Okay, And you would think that at a time like that, he would want his troops very, very close to him. What he actually did was create a staggering where they had the regular troops as far away the hell as they could get them. Out on the front lines that weren't even front lines yet. They didn't want them near Baghdad. They didn't want them near the capital. They were afraid they'd turn the guns around. And then a belt of the Republican Guard, the elite, the more trusted troops, but even they were kept at a distance, and then only an inner circle. Now, you might say that's just good strategic planning and military use. No, it was absolute fear of his own people, an absolute fear of his own people. What does that have to do with us today? Let me read to you. Uh, this is on uh, WND, uh, WND.com. Military told not to read Obama scandal news. President Obama has said the outrage over the federal government's decision to monitor citizens' phone activity is all hype. He might want to share that opinion with the U.S. Air Force, which is ordering members of the service not to look at news stories about it. WND has received an unclassified NOTAM, Notice to All Airmen, that warns airmen not to look at news stories related to the data mining scandal. The notice applies to users of the Air Force, uh, non-pernet, Uh, non-classified internet protocol router network, which is the only way that many troops stationed overseas or and on bases in the U.S. are able to access the internet. That means basically if you're using the Air Force's network to get on the internet, you've been told do not read, do not read, again, do not read publicly available information about the uh, Verizon wiretapping scandal if you're a member of the Air Force. The last line of the ex executive summary states, Users are not to use AF and NPR net systems to access the Verizon phone records collection and other related news stories because the action could constitute a classified message incident. Cindy McGee, the mother of an airman stationed at UAE, spoke with WND. Quote, The fact that our government is attempting to censor our service members from the truth of what's happening here at home is truly frightening and disheartening, said McGee. 
Her son received the same notice. McGee continued, I am outraged that our government is attempting to censor the information from our military that every citizen in this country is potentially being targeted by our government and a massive overreach of their constitutional powers by unconstitutional surveillance of all Americans and storage of that data. Last Wednesday, The Guardian broke the news of a top-secret court order requiring Verizon to hand over all of its call data on an ongoing basis through the National Security Agency. On Friday, the Washington Post reported that the NSA and FBI are gathering data from the service of servers of nine U.S. Internet companies. Then reports came out that there are 50 companies from which the government is collecting data. During a press conference, the president dismissed this as what he called hype over the surveillance programs. But concern over the broad surveillance is causing legislators to look into what they can do to enable even more oversight of these operations. The latest news detailing how the government keeps track of this massive amount of data and its origins was posted by The Guardian for everyone in the world to read except members of the United States Air Force. And I'll bet your ass it's not just the Air Force. You don't believe that. Ladies and gentlemen, if you believe for a minute that only Air Force personnel were issued an order like this, you are a dumbass. I'm sorry. Do you really think it's only the Air Force? Do you really think crap like this hasn't gone on in other branches of service? That the Air Force guys are the ones that are so super important that we wouldn't want them to read this, but in other branches, that's okay. Now, USF guys, read this all you want. Sure, sure we're supposed to believe that. Do you understand what this is? Do you understand how bullshit the rationale behind this is? Let me read this to you again. The uh, Let me find it. Users are not to use AF and near whatever the hell that acronym is, systems to access the Verizon phone records collection and other related news stories because the action could constitute a classified message incident. If you read information that's being published by news agencies around the world publicly to every eyeball in the world, it could create a classified message incident? Who the hell wrote that executive summary that's in our United States Air Force? I want that person publicly to come out and defend that. What a pile of bullshit. It could be a classified message incident that a member of our Air Force that's being told we're doing this for the good of the nation finds out that they're monitoring his freaking grandmother's phone calls when everybody knows but him? That's a classified message incident of what? Would they would leak the information from the New York Times? Really? That's the problem? You know, what you're basically saying is you no longer have rights to know what's going on as a serviceman. Now, let me tell you something. I'm the first one to defend military command when somebody goes, this soldier's rights are being violated because he can't do this or that or this and say, you know what? You don't have 100% of your rights when you serve our nation. You don't, right? You say, well, I want to go out and do this. Well, if your sergeant told you to bring your ass over here and do something else, you're required to follow that order. But I have a right to free speech, not on the job, not in uniform, and not deployed to a foreign nation. You don't. Right? You have a job, you have something you've agreed to do to, and you have an oath that you took. Being told you can't read the truth that's available to every other human being on the planet is bullshit. This person with this policy has brought shame on U.S. military command, and specifically at this point, because it's the only one we have verified, the United States Air Force. Shame upon the entire branch of service, not to the individual. Don't be mad at me if you're an airman or a lieutenant or a pilot. I'm telling you that a command decision like this is a is a black mark on an entire branch of service. 
And I guarantee you it's not the only one. I guarantee you it's not the only one. This is the beginning of another incrementalist policy. Okay? And it's just the latest thing in this policy to make sure we try to divorce the service member from the reality on the ground. You believe what you're told, you do what you're told, you shut up and you drive on. Why? Because all of you that say, well, they'll never fire on U.S. troops. If they don't know what's really going on, they just might. Now, do I, am I saying they're going to be strafing cities with F-16s or something? No. No. You're not getting the point. To control a nation of this size, you need a lot of force. You need a lot of force. And those with access to the force have to be willing to participate with you. So you must convince them through their patriotism that this is for the greater good. And sooner or later, in any totalitarian state, the truth comes out. And in the world of modern society with the internet and blogs and text messages and social media, the truth comes out faster and is distributed more quickly. So your only play then is to tell them, do not look. Do not look. We're about to celebrate our nation's birthday. And apparently those in charge are doing it by spitting on the flag and wiping their rear ends with it. That's what's going on right now. Your money's not your money. Your rights are not your rights. Your right to know does not exist. And even those who have sworn to uphold and defend the Constitution no longer apparently have the right to the knowledge that has been breached by those that they're supposed to obey. Folks, it's time. It's time to act. It is time to start fighting back by every means that's available to us in a peaceful and modern society. By leaving states that are totalitarian. This is part of the fight. By informing the people that are in your family that are in armed service of what's really going on at home. Tell them the truth. Because apparently their commanders are telling them they're not allowed to know. And those of you that are in control doing this stupid shit, most of you will never hear a word that comes out of my mouth because you're above my pay grade, as we used to say. Let me tell you something. You're screwing up your own plan. The more you do this, the more you do this, the more truth will come out. The more you try to hide from the people in service to this nation that did join out of patriotism, that do believe in America, the more you hide the truth from them, the more they will ask questions, the deeper they will dig, and the more they will concern themselves with finding the truth. When I was in the military, we had certain areas in town when I was in training you weren't supposed to go to. They called it a red light district. And they would give you a bunch of names of places not to go. And if you went to one of them, and many of us did, you would see that many other people that were told not to go there were there. If I had run one of these clubs or establishments, I would have been paying drill sergeants and, and black hats at Fort Benning, et cetera, to say, to say the name of my establishment in the not go there list. Because the best advertising you could get with a bunch of keyed up 18, 19, 20 year old kids with a big pocket full of money and one or two days of freedom before they had to go back into the pain of training, especially at a time where they knew they might be going off to war when it was over. Well, whoever the ass clown is behind this summary, the behind this decision, there's a whole shitload of people in the United States Air Force that weren't paying attention, that would have never even asked a question, 
now they're going to. They might not use your network or your freaking routers to find the answer, but they're going to find the answer nonetheless. They're going to ask questions. They're going to keep asking questions. And if you try to shut them up, the people of this country are about at a point where we're tired of it. We're tired of you calling people who only want to do right for this nation and want the people of this country to know when you're breaching our trust that you're doing it, treasonous traitors. We're about fed up. We really are. I'm talking about little housewives that never gave a shit about this. Never cared. Soccer moms that never cared. People that work everyday jobs that never cared are starting to care. Keep it up. Keep pushing. Push the boot harder on the throat. Please do it. I am not being facetious here. I am serious. You people in charge, keep pushing because it's the only hope our country has. The slower you push, the slower you advance, the more incremental in your results you are, the greater chance you have for success. But you guys are speeding it up now with a quickening. You're being more and more blatant, and people are doing more and more to expose what you're doing. So keep it up. Just like Feinstein with the firearms bill, no person, no person in America sold more guns in the last 12 months than Dianne Feinstein. So you guys keep it up. Sentinels are watching, and we won't quit. If you think I'm a little bit over the top today, I want you to think about this. Members of the United States Air Force are being told not to read publicly available information in our news media about what their government is doing, the government that they've sworn to uphold and defend so long as it's constitutional. If that doesn't anger you, check your pulse. Check your pulse. Because it's very, very wrong. Here's an interesting question coming in from Warren. Warren says, are women preppers more pessimistic about the near future than men? It seems that they think things are getting off the rails quicker than men. Although it seems that preppers are more generally men and women are harder to bring onto the fold, as it were. The women in the, the Women of Prepper series interview seem to have a much more dire near-term outlook. I'll tell you what it is. I think women are more emotional creatures than men. I know after my just my outburst there of anger, you might say that maybe not the case, but women are. Women worry more than men. Women have a a, a certain level of of a caregiver status that they they really care about their family. They, and not that men don't, but they care in a very emotional way, a very attached way, uh, a very. In fact, women lead their lives. I know some of you are going to be pissed, but this is the truth. Women in general, not all, but women in general lead their lives driven by emotion. Men in general lead their lives driven by logic. I know there's some stupid men out there that don't do logical things. I'm not saying that. I'm saying men and women who are fully informed and engaged and active and have decided that they're going to take control tend to follow one of two different paths, emotionally led path or a logically led path. And men are predisposed to the logical and women are predisposed to the emotional. If you don't believe that, look at how we vote in the sheeple world, okay? Which shows the underlying driver. Women, in majority, across the totality of things, vote Democrat and liberal and progressive. Men vote libertarian and conservative. And the reason is, if you are led by emotion, and I know there's women, I've never voted, but I know, I know, I know. That's, we've gone from fully informed, and how the emotion and logic drives us here, over to the other non-fully informed world. But the emotion and, and, and things work the same in those worlds. If you listen to the message of progressivism and socialism, okay, it 
feels right. Justice, equality, social justice, concern, care. No, no reason that we should ever have a child go hungry. Everybody should have an equal result. There's enough wealth for all. It feels right. It, and that's the whole marketing spin. When you listen to conservatism, conservatism in the mainstream, it logically progresses, all right, what you work for, you should keep. Okay? What you work for, you should keep. That makes logical sense. The individual should be allowed to succeed or fail based on their own ability. Sure, we need to help those who are truly less fortunate, but not everybody should be guaranteed success. If we guarantee everybody success, everybody will be the same and there'll be nothing exceptional. These are things that you have to divorce the emotion from to understand the logic of. The problem is, out in the mainstream sheeple world, those are both marketing messages and neither one of them are the truth of what either party is doing to this country. Okay, it, It's all the same. There's a few ideological differences where people stand on certain things because they know it's the one thing that keeps them in power. Okay, With liberals, it's generally things like they're going to back things like gay rights and conservatives are generally going to back things like gun rights. We've got libertarians in the middle going, why are we fighting about this? We have a constitution that guarantees our right to firearms. We shouldn't even be debating this. And, and gay rights is something that the government doesn't need to be involved with because the government shouldn't be policing the things that they are right now, like marriage. If the government wasn't in marriage, there'd be no debate. Think about that, right? But let that go for now, right? Just let that, but that's true, right? If the government wasn't involved in the institution of marriage, which to me, the government, you know, has the state of Texas has no business in my life, in my relationship with my wife whatsoever. They have one. They have one. Technically, my wife and I are married to each other via the state of Texas. Therefore, the state of Texas is actually a third party in our marriage. But I don't like that. So let that one go anyway. But what I'm saying is that that shows that logic versus emotional driven thing. So when a man hears there is a problem and finally breaks the cocoon of normalcy bias and accepts it, and even when they, if they go through a panic phase and they come out the other side of the panic phase and they just go, okay, now it's time for action, they're driven by logic. What do I do? There's a problem, what's the solution? 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 Women tend to focus on the problem more than the solution. I know you're going to be mad. I'm sorry, but we've seen it over and over again. It works this way. Let's say that a man and a woman were both working on the same problem. And they were very frustrated. They've been working on it for hours, and they can't get it done. They just can't figure out there's something in the way of it. Generally speaking, a woman will call her best friend to talk to her about it. Okay? Just will. I don't care if you like it or not. It's true. I don't care if you wouldn't and you're a woman. I'm saying the majority of women will call their best friend. The person that will most understand how they feel about the problem. A man will generally call the person that he believes knows the most about the problem that's more solution-oriented. One is a, how do I solve this? The other one is, how do I feel better about it? Okay. So where, why do women get more reactionary than men when they wake up to the reality? When you start looking at the problems in this country and the things that can go wrong, it's impossible to have a solution for 100% of what could go wrong. 
So the man just keeps working, just keeps working, just keeps working like Nemo, just keeps swimming, just keep working, just keep worrying. And many times, even though if the woman is doing the solutions along the way, instead of just thinking the next problem has a solution, the next problem has a solution, the next problem exists, the next problem exists, the next problem exists. There's another problem, there's another problem, there's another problem. So they keep worrying. I'm sorry, I know some people are pissed right now, but it's the case. And I've actually been surprised at how, how graphically it's been illustrated by the Woman of Prepping series. I gotta say, every woman we've had on, with the exception of one, and still a little bit, has been more urgently concerned about something really bad happening. It's, it's an end times event or something like that. And men, I mean, I've, I've interviewed far more men than women just because more men ask to come on the show than women. I almost never get that from a man. I almost never get that from the man. So I think, are they? Yes. That's why I think it's that way. And again, I know you're, man, there's some of you gals out there. You are headstrong, level headed, logical, action based oriented thinkers. And you are as good at ex examining a problem and determining the solution or finding someone that has a solution as any man. I know you're out there. I know there's a lot of you. But I know it ain't the majority of you by a long shot. And if it is, show me ten women that are that way. Just ten. And when you do find ten, and you will, tell me how many you had to go through to get to ten. Awake and fully aware women. Okay? Go through ten, go find me ten awake and fully aware men that take that process. And I think you'll go through a lot less of awake and fully aware people to get the same number. And it's just, and it's not wrong or right. It's just how we're, how we're, how we're led. It's how we are as human beings. And it's why we function so well as a team. It's why the traditional family, <gasps> did he say traditional family? The traditional family is a man, a woman, and kids. It is. Doesn't mean I want to police it. It just means that is, that is traditional. And I don't mean traditional by government or law or regulation. I'm saying traditionally, as in by a preponderance thereof, men have generally paired up with a woman and raised a family. And it happens all over the world where there is no government intervention. Now, there are places where you may, men might have multiple wives. Generally, that's because there's not enough men to go around and women need men in those, those societies to survive. But when you stabilize a society, the majority of pair bonds will be one-to-one -one pair bonds, a man, a woman, and children. Especially once children become involved. And you know why? The children in a developmental state need the emotional, loving, kind, concerned hand of a woman and the strong, logical pathway guidance of a man to develop well. They need it. Doesn't mean they can't do it without it, but they need it to by and large develop that way. And if they don't get it, then it's going to be incumbent upon them to acquire it for themselves. Does that mean two people of the same gender can't do that if they consciously focus on it? No, it doesn't mean they can't. It just means that when you, when you let society do what society will do, the majority of pair bonds will be male and female with a family unit and children. And those two sides work well to complement each other. I've probably pissed everybody off now, but you can't be mad at me for my opinion, and you certainly can't be mad at me for 
a truth that seems at least to be based on factual information if we look at it. If we look at society, I mean, show me a society where the majority of pay pair bonds are not one man and one woman. The majority, not, well, they allow, I know, I know, I know. Right? Well, it's the uh, fundamentalist Mormons or whatever. That's not a majority of a society. That's a segment of a, that's a micro segment of a micro segment of a nano segment of a society. Don't, don't be stupid with it. Show me a nation. Show me a nation where the majority of pair bonds aren't one man and one woman. Again, I don't want to police it. I'm not going back on my libertarian principles. I'm just saying it's what happens when you leave people alone. And this is why. Because if you're a hard-charging, logic-driven male, like, like most men that are awake and aware are, you probably have suppressed your emotion on some levels to a point that's unhealthy. And a woman will give you balance. And a woman will definitely get irate and be emotionally driven beyond a standpoint where it helps to have that logic-centered male in the equation to pull her back in. We balance each other, yin and yang. Again, you want to be pissed over, be pissed over. But yes, women that wake up to the reality generally overreact compared to men. Next up today, um, DH. DH says, my question is where and when is it okay to walk on a swale? I've seen YouTube videos of Lawton and others walking in the lowest part of a swale, ditch, when dry and when wet. If I'm going to plant fruit trees into and below the berm of a swale, I will have to walk on the berm to harvest the fruit. But I recall you mentioning the swale and berm are supposed to be non-compacted to help be sure the water will seep in. Any further explanation you can provide would be appreciated. Well, think about this, DH. You take a walk through your backyard every day, and when it rains, it doesn't just sit there like a little lake. It it seeps in, right? You might say, well, it runs off, but I'm sure we've all seen places where you look at the landscape and you're kind of like, that looks like a dry lake, but it's like all grass and it rains and maybe some water pools in the bottom, but it soaks in and kids run up and down and play in a park that looks like that all the time and it doesn't go anywhere. Well, what's going on? Well, you're only going to get so much compaction unless you purposefully compact, especially after the establishment of a root net base. So let's say you've just dug the swale and you've gone and you've planted it and you've cover cropped it. You should probably stay off it until you've established a root net, and then it becomes a lot more stable. It's that loose, friable earth you need to stay off of during the establishment phase, and you still might get up onto it a little bit just to plant it. Right? But generally speaking, since we're going uh, six foot wide, we're looking at a berm that's about six foot wide on the downhill side, so people will generally only get a little bit up onto it to be able to plant the centers uh, with trees and cover crops and support species. But generally speaking, stay off it until it's established. And then, yeah, you can walk on it. But you probably shouldn't do it any more than you have to. And then, you know, a lot of the, you know, you're not going to plant an entire forest into a six to eight foot structure. Even though the forest along swales generally tend to be a belt, right? A long, narrow forest, right? And we can create cells in between them and things like that. Um, you know, you're going to plant a lot of things past the berm. Right, so that's not even a concern then. Walking in the swale, um, you could do that right away. You could do that absolutely right away. You probably don't want to have 400 people march down the middle of it or something like that, but no, there's no problem there. If you have really compacted soil, you may actually want to disturb the bottom of the swale. I've seen projects where what you do is you dig your swale, and you've got really compacted, let's say, clay, and then you take, if it's a big swale, a small bulldozer with a ripper, You know what a ripper is? It's like these three big, giant, long-ass tines that go into the ground and they and they drag like a like almost like a super plow behind the dozer. 
but they don't plow like, you know, cutting furrows. They just basically cut like a groove into the land. And you might actually rip the bottom of a swale that's, that's severely compacted uh, land, severely compacted clay. Sometimes you might even rip areas between the swales to open that up and get it a nature a jump start. But once you get the system into, you know, a fulfilled system, uh, you get it into a stable state, uh, that stability allows for foot traffic, and it becomes less of an issue. So there you go. I'm kind of glad we're going into other things right now toward the end of the show to get some variety in today's show and not have it all be like, you know, um, uh, oppression and capital controls and tyranny and, you know, lying to our service members and hiding the truth from them. So here's another thing that does that. Larry says, uh, can you explain to everyone how a fly bubble works compared with a plastic bobber? Uh, so it's a fishing question. So a, 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 a fly bubble. A fly bubble is not really a bobber at all. Its primary purpose is to create weight and then give you an ability to move something that would through the water that normally would be difficult to do. So if you think about fly fishing, right? So fly fishing, you have this fly rod, and you've probably everybody here has probably seen at least video or pictures of somebody fly fishing. A big long rod, this big thick line. And attached to the end of that line is a thin line, a leader, right? And then there's a little fly on the end of that that looks like some sort of a fly. A wet fly floats, a dry fly slinks. Some are kind of in between the two. There's streamers that we can, you know, once we get it out there, we can stream it back through the water, across or atop or below. They look like minnows. We can mimic anything with a fly. But there's certain situations where a fly is more challenging, and there's certain situations where a fly is far better than, you know, having a worm bouncing around. Let's say you're fishing for trout in the middle of a mayfly hatch. Well, you know, they're not real interested in worms when there's a million mayflies bouncing around. But you could put a mayfly on into where that fish is rising and you've almost guaranteed a hookup. And there's just other situations where having that ability to move a really light artificial lure or sometimes even a bait out and fish it with a lot of finesse are advantageous. So we put a big old honking bright colored bobber out there and we're in still clear water of a stream and we go tossing a fly out at the end of a bobber. It'll go out there and almost do the same thing, but you get this big old colored thing that kind of sets off to the fish. Something ain't right, brother. Something's wrong. And it doesn't attach itself to the line the same way. We can, certain situations we can do it. Big bobbers with a dead shrimp behind them in salt water, uh, specifically for things like, uh, sea trout. Uh, spec trout, very, very conventional because you, you sit there and pop the cork and it makes like a disturbance, like something swarming and hitting and then they find this shrimp dangling behind it and they'll nail it. But in general, with finesse fishing, this would be a bad thing. So what a fly bobber is, or a fly bubble, is a very small float that's crystal clear and it has two eye hooks in it, one on each side. So it sits in line. The line doesn't wrap around it or through it the way a float does. It's tied to one side and the leader's tied to the other. This makes it very easy for you to do something like this. Be fishing with 10-pound line for normal fishing needs. See a specific application for flies or other light lures where you want to drop down a 4-pound line. So you tie the 10-pound leader line or main line to the fly bubble. And on the other side, you tie your leader at a 4-pound test. Now you've got this finesse fly with this very thin monofilament. right? So you still only have 4 pounds of holding strength because your weakest link is the leader. But now you can finesse that fly to the fish. And then we can cast that fly bubble and fish that fly from a spinning rod. 
That's the that's the purpose of a fly bubble. And if you so you go through any kind of store with a lot of fishing tackle, you can probably find them. Again, they're a little clear bobber looking thing, but they don't have any kind of like attachment. The line doesn't go through them. They have a an eye on both the front and the back, and you want to fish them with the thicker part of the bubble coming towards you, and the thinner part going down toward the fly so that they come through the water kind of uh, with a little bit of disturbance and it helps you have greater control over the fly. I've been in situations, especially with like places where a lake was just stocked with trout for like a rodeo or an event. Um, and, and with that case, uh, hold on. So I got disturbed there by Skype with my afternoon interview. I'm trying to jam a bunch of interviews in this week for you guys, but that's that I've seen those situations where you know you just take it. It doesn't even have to be a special fly, a little black fly or something like that, and with a slow retrieve, and you just clean up on them. And it's usually trout that I've I've used these mostly for. And I talked about maybe even live bait. So here's an example of where I've used live bait with these things, where you need to be very very much finesseful with your fishing. Still moving streams and lakes, trout again, mealworms, little mealworms, very small hook, like a number 14, light line, like a two or four pound leader, regular spinning rod, and then take that mealworm and just hook him through the back of his tail and get that, that fly bubble out there and twitch and move. And, and, and that mealworm looks so natural because it's not being weighted down by a heavy line and a split shot. It's just, but you have the weight to be able to position that, to get it up under that, you know, that, that tree that's leaning out over the stream or what have you, or to cast past it and use, uh, the, the, the weight of the bubble and the currents to drift it, just like a fly fisherman would. It's not as good as a fly rod, but it gives you the ability to almost have fly rod capability with spinning gear, and they belong in your wilderness fishing kits, your survival fishing kits. They're so, Ever love and versatile. Another thing, I've seen uh, times when grasshoppers just kill on big sunfish and bass and other things like that. Um, a grasshopper on a on a, like a number twelve, number ten bait holder hooked on a fly bubble. I can put that thing way way downstream, way upstream, way out in the lake, way out along like a like if you're on a lake and you're fishing from shore and you've got a lot of weeds in the summer, and you keep getting hung up in those weeds, we can keep it up above the weeds and get out along the line of those weeds and twitch, twitch. And that, that grasshopper with a small hook will float and struggle, like, oh, my God, and eat, you know what the grasshopper's thinking. Holy crap, somebody shoved a hook through me. What do I do? Right? And the fish is thinking, oh, that grasshopper's so screwed. So there's a lot that we can do with a fly bubble, and they're far superior for those applications Then there's a bobber. Now, can you do these things with a, with a small bobber? I've done it when I didn't have a fly bubble. The chief advantage of a fly bubble, one clear, the fish don't see it as well. So it's less of a, because uh, you're, you're in a situation already. That the reason you're doing this is fish are being spooky or you're trying to get into a location where even they wouldn't normally be spooky the way you have to cast in. Let's say you can't get an ideal approach. There's overhangs and things like that. You would spook the fish. So you're already in that situation, so why aggravate it? And then the bigger advantage, again, is if I'm out there fishing for you know one type of fishing and I'm sitting there with a rod spooled up with 12-pound line and all of a sudden the situation dictates that I might want to be presenting smaller fish or more finesse fishing situations with 4-pound line or 6-pound line, I can put that leader on the end 
uh, without getting too creative. I don't have to tie a blood knot or anything like that. I just put that fly bubble in between the two. And if I start practicing my fishing, and this is something I love to do, with very small light snap swivels, I can have them already tied up so that I can just take whatever my, my snell hook or whatever off, drop that fly bubble on, and immediately, and that's one of the agility things I like to do with fishing, is have at least one rod rigged up with a lightweight black snap swivel that can immediately have a leader or any type of gear attached to it. So if I happen to be out and I, I notice a certain behavior in fishing and I'm not rigged up for it, it's not gone by the time I get to it. So this is a totally different example, but here's a perfect one. I'm out fishing for catfish on a lake in a boat. All of a sudden I see white bass breaking the surface. Um, in that case, usually when I'm in that, that situation, I have a rod rigged up and ready to go with a big old slab on it. So I can get close to where I see those fish breaking the surface, reach way out there with that slab, and start dragging it across the top. Because those fish might come up, they might be killing shad, they might do that for seven, eight minutes, and gone. Right? And if I get too close, I can, I can make them go down early. So I want that, that's, that slab that I can reach way out there with, and I want it ready to go. Well, in other situations, it might not be practical to have three or four different rods with me rigged up three or four different ways. So this is like a hybrid where I can have maybe two rods and one rigged up for what I think is my most likely alternative to what I'm doing, but a real quick way to switch over. So I can open that box, grab a fly bubble that's already got a leader tied to it, put that on, attach whatever I want to attach to it, and get it out there, right? Sometimes I might make that change. I have a lot more time to think. I'll just notice the fish are hitting bugs today. They're, and they're hitting them right at the edge of the weed line. And the way I'm rigged up, I can't really, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting baits to them, but they're not hitting it. I can just change my tactics relatively quickly and be methodical in that situation. So the more agility you can put into your, your presentations as a fisherman, the better. And that's the role a fly, a fly bubble plays in increasing that, that flexibility. Because in the ideal situation, you'd have a fly rod. One more bonus though. Not always. Um, There's some things as you get better with fly casting, you can do with roll casting and all and some sidearm stuff where you can, you can mitigate how far back that fly line has to come. But there's places where it's really hard to work a fly rod. It's really hard to not get hung up in things behind you, right? That's why you see most fly fishermen in a stream with waders so they can go up and down the stream because generally there's not a lot of trees growing in the middle of the stream. But even smaller bodies of water and things like that, sometimes it's just not practical, right? It's just not practical to get that back cast in. And again, I know some of you guys that are good at it are going to tell me, there's roll cast. I know, I know. But it's still, you know, there's a, basically, I don't know what you actually call it. I call it a pull cast. And that's where I get a short back and forth stroke going. And then um, I, I have a lot of extra line laying in front of me on the ground. And as I come forward, I actually pull the line down as I throw it. And it'll strip a bunch of that that deadline sitting in front of me off and get greater distance with less back cast. I know you can do these things, but you know what? I can take my, my, my medium light, ultra light, light action spinning rod and flick my wrist with a very short back cast and I can get a lot of distance out of that fly bubble. So there's instances even where it might be a better option than a conventional fly rod. Those of you that do it just for the chase and just for the challenge, I get it. I'm talking about putting meat on the table here. That's another way you can get it done. Let's take another one. Okay, we're going to go back into some uh, dark stuff again, stuff that can piss me off. And I'm going to try to do a completely positive show for you guys very soon. I, I, you know, I've got to go to Montana next week. 
uh, for the Dave Jackie thing. I got a bunch of interviews in between. They're generally pretty positive, but I know sometimes you get tired of hearing the bad stuff, but I, I do try to always give you the solutions. And from talking to a lot of you, uh, most of you do seem to realize I try to give you solutions, but I, I've got to give you the problems too, especially when we're being lied to. So now we're going to go to GMOs, genetically modified organisms. You know, the stuff that they modify so we can spray it with insecticide and herbicide and then have you eat it like GMO soy. And, and you know, we, we can debate whether or not stuff should be labeled and blah, blah, blah. But we should at least be told the truth about what's being done when we want to know, as far as I'm concerned. So what I'm talking about now is very recently a strain of genetically modified wheat turned up in an Oregon field, and everybody's like, I don't know how it got there. Monsanto's like, I don't know how it got there. It could have been sabotage. Uh, the farmer that grew it's like, I don't know. I just found it, and I turned it in like I'm supposed to. Uh, the people that oversee it, the bureaucrats, are like, we don't know how it could have happened. There was a law that said it wasn't supposed to, as though nature obeys the law. What if I told you that we know where some of that seed was stored? What if I told you that? Um, and what if I told you it was stored in Fort Collins, Colorado? Let me read it to you. Genetically modified wheat. This is DenverPost.com, by the way, not AlexJones.com or whatever. Just for those that maybe wouldn't trust the source unless it was mainstream media. This is as mainstream media as it gets, the Denver Post. Genetically modified wheat seed was stored at Fort Collins Repository. A genetically modified strain of wheat that produced fears of contamination of U.S. wheat supplies was kept in a government-operated storage facility in Fort Collins. Government-operated storage facility in Fort Collins. Monsanto's experimental biotech wheat variety was unexpectedly found growing in an Oregon field this past spring. The discovery threw some U.S. wheat exports into turmoil because of the concerns over genetically engineered crops. Japan and South Korea have suspended imports of U.S. And, and Western white wheat because of the incident. The suspensions target wheat growing primarily in Oregon and Washington. Colorado wheat is not affected. The U.S. Department of Agriculture confirmed Friday that seed from the controversial biotech wheat have been stored at the National Center for Genetic Resources Preservation in Fort Collins. Let me tell you what that means. That means they're using your tax dollars to preserve the genetic resource that is GMO. <laughs> However, the USDA said all of the seed at the storage center was destroyed by late 2011 and thus could not have been the source of the strains found in Oregon. Wait a minute. Let's the Brent, Brent, Brent bullshit detector should be going off. Remember, remember the freaking anthrax, right? Remember the anthrax right after 9-11 that turned out that it was U.S. produced anthrax from a U.S. chemical uh, weapons research facility? It was uh, like such an advanced weapon, and they, they blamed one guy for it who eventually supposedly killed himself. Remember all this? Okay, how secure, <laughs> just, just think about this, how freaking secure do you think weaponized anthrax is compared to... GMO wheat. Do you really think that seed from GMO wheat is secured to the level of weaponized anthrax? My answer, as bad as I think GMO wheat is, I hope not. I hope not. Because as secure as you could afford to make this much seed, I would hope that you would secure weaponized anthrax to the hilt 
I mean, just out of your mind security, like 17 layers to get out of the facility, being searched 15 times at each one. Do you think they do that with wheat? Do you really think they do that with wheat? So what they're saying is because we burned it in 2011, why'd you have it until 2011 then, by the way, government? Why? Why did you decide to burn it in 2011? I'm just saying. Why'd you keep it there? But just because you burned what you had doesn't mean that no one could have got any. And here's the thing that people in government just don't seem to understand about seeds, so I'll educate you guys yet again. They don't have to get out with like enough to, 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 to seed an acre or two like they found in this Oregon field. They could get out with enough to seed, you know, like, oh, I don't know, a couple raised beds. And then, here's the thing, right? When you, when you harvest the wheat and you don't grind it up in a red and you just keep it, you know what you have? You have seed and you can plant it again and again and again. That's the problem with this supposed containment of a biological life form. Life finds a way. So, the bullshit detector should be going off right now when they say there's no way it could have been our wheat because we burned what we had in 2011. If you can't control anthrax, you can't control wheat berries. And it's very insulting to the American people, government, that you would think we're so stupid that we would believe that you can't control anthrax, but you can control wheat. How dumb do you really think we are? Apparently pretty dumb. I know your education system is working hard to make sure we're that stupid, but you haven't gone that far yet. There's too many damn good teachers out there still encouraging students to think for themselves, even in the middle of a bureaucratic mess that you call our public school system. You teachers that get mad at me, you don't understand. You're the only thing keeping our children informed. You're the only thing challenging them. Challenge them, teachers. Challenge them. I don't care what pablum crap they make you puke down those kids' throats. Pause once a day and teach them something you're not supposed to. For the love of God, keep doing it. Those of you that are, I salute you. So don't think I'm putting you down. But the federal control and the state control of our education system is trying to make us dumb enough that we would believe this load of bullshit. Don't buy it. I don't buy it. If you do, I have to ask you, how? How could you believe that your government is so incompetent that it can't control... Anthrax that's been weaponized, the most highly advanced weaponized anthrax we know of. Can't pull that off, but we, we, can, we can control wheat berries. Back to the article. The government's facility would store 700,000 varieties of seeds to be used as backups in the event that plant or crop strains are wiped out by man-made or natural disasters. The seed bank is also viewed as indispensable to researchers looking for new biofuel varieties of crops with increased nutrition and plants with medicinal properties. Really, that's why you had bio biohazard wheat, basically GMO wheat that Monsanto insisted? I mean, is it just me? Or, or did we not hear that this stuff was all shut down years ago and there was nothing to see here? So we're supposed to trust Monsanto, who lies at every opportunity. Monsanto, whose CEO came out and said they were proud of lying about Anniston, Alabama. It was their duty to protect their shareholders. And the government, who's been listening to your grandmother's cell phone calls for years and saying they're not. Which one of these is more credible? Really, which one of them am I supposed to believe? Ah. <laughs> uh, Monsanto's wheat strain was genetically engineered to be resistant to herbicides such as Roundup. That trait would enable farmers to use chemicals to kill weeds growing in the wheat fields without harming the wheat plants. 
Doesn't say anything about not harming the people who eat the wheat, though, does it? Monsanto conducted extensive testing of the wheat variety from 1998 to 2005, but never brought it to market because of opposition to biotech crops in some export countries. The USDA, which is Monsanto's Government Regulatory Services Department, all right, that's what USDA really means, is investigating how the wheat strain ended up in the Oregon field. It said there is no indication that the wheat entered commercial markets. It's mystifying as to how it occurred, said Daryl Hanavan, executive director of the Colorado Association of Wheat Growers. I'm not sure that we'll ever know. Huh. That ranks conspiratorial even for me, Mr. Non-Foil Hat himself. I'm not sure that we'll ever know. Jeez. I'm not sure that we'll ever know why Jack Ruby shot Oswald on national TV. I'm not sure that we'll ever know. Hanavan said he has visited the Sea Storage Center in Fort Collins and took note of its extensive security. It's a very, very secure facility, he said. I'm positive they would have never allowed the wheat seed to be released. So there you go. It couldn't have been. It couldn't have happened. I mean, they can't control freaking anthrax. They can't control anthrax. We're supposed to believe they can control wheat. You don't think... They're trying to dumb us down. You don't think they think they've already done it? You don't think that they think we're stupid? Really? Come on, guys. You know better. So am I saying the wheat in Oregon came from here? No, I'm not. I don't know where it came from. I really don't. Maybe like, maybe like we were told by Mr. Bureaucrat here, we'll never know. But I'll tell you what, don't tell me it couldn't have happened. Don't tell me it was impossible. Because I'm sure you would have told me in 2000 that it would be impossible for highly weaponized anthrax to get out of a facility in Maryland. And they were lying then too, weren't they? Here's another one that's kind of interesting with the government um, oversight thing. Hi, Jack. Enjoy the show. Thought you and your listeners might appreciate heads up on yet more government intervention. I bought a distillation unit as a present for someone last year and got the email below. All right, so... Let me read this from you. This comes from Brujas. Hello, as many of you are probably aware, the TTB, Alcohol and Tobacco Tax Trade Bureau, which is the federal government agency that controls virtually all things related to alcohol, formally requested a list of sales of distillers, distillation co columns, and boilers. This request encompasses all sales of these products, and these products only. Supplies and other equipment are not required to be documented. For the past three years, and quarterly reports from this point on. This appears to have been an industry-wide movement, as all of the major players and distributors have received the same request. We are contacting you to let you know that based on your purchase date and the products that you purchased, your information will be included on our list to the TTB. We have fielded a very large number of phone calls and emails asking what the TTB intends to do with this information. This is something we cannot answer. There are many theories being discussed on various forums, including our own at thebrujasforum.com. However, they are not currently substantiated. Even though it should not have been a significant effect to those not using the equipment to distill alcohol or those who have already obtained proper licensing, it can still be an inconvenience should the government act on the information. One positive side to this action is that it has energized many people who support hobby distillation who are obviously the most concerned over this request. And there is now some movement to press for legalization of hobby distillation. If you would be interested in supporting the movement, please visit our forum. While this is obviously beyond our control, we are sorry to be the bearer of such news. Sincerely, Brujas. Brujas, okay. So basically what it's saying is uh, Brujas, I guess, is a, a home 
brewery, home distillery store, right? In fact, let me let me look at it real quick and just see how they market themselves. So anyway, um, looking at it now, there's a reason. Um, they, they, they market themselves. Moonshine Still and Home Distillation Supplies from Brujas. So they're marking themselves as a supplier of distillation. So that's probably the case there. So what this is basically saying is that any, even though it's legal to buy and own and have a still, anybody that bought anything like that from a major player has now been requested uh, to, uh, to, to have their information sent to the government, to the, uh, the TTB. So they would now know that you bought one. Wouldn't know what you're doing with it, but they would know you bought one and where you had to ship to. Just saying. So I, I reached out to Stephen Harris, who sells a still, specifically marketed to make fuel with, and even tells you how to get a permit for making fuel, and said, have you received any requests like this? His answer was absolutely not, just for your edification. I'm not saying it'll never happen, but, you know. So here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking if you want the ability to do distillation, you might want to consider getting one of these stills that are like, you know, what Steve has for fuel because at least you would have the capability to do it at some point. You might want to think about not buying it from a place that says, we sell the home distillers. Because <laughs> basically these guys are walking, walking a tightrope here uh, with what they're doing. They're saying, we, you know, we sell to people that, you know, get permits, but we don't ask them for a permit because they only need a permit to buy it. So it also might be a reason to get a hold of something like that. Before you do need a permit, just get the object. Just saying. I mean, think about the rush on guns. And this is not a commercial for Steve, because I don't care where you get it. I mean, I think one of the smartest things you can do right now is buy one for cash money. Um, I also think that, you know, I really didn't know there was a big movement out there to legalize home distillation. We should push for that. We should push for the repeal of any law that doesn't make sense. And there's no, it doesn't make any sense that you're not allowed to make small amounts of distillate spirits in your own home. None. Now, if they want to put limits on it and say you can't sell it, that's fine. That's how wine works. That's how beer works right now. It's dangerous. No, it's not. No, it's not. Every, you know, do you know how many people would be blind and dead if half of the myths about distilling alcohol at home were true? Millions. There'd be people dead all over the place. There's countries where it's completely legal. It was done in this country for centuries before anybody got in the way of it. You know, and he, I mean, come on. It, yeah, right? This is for our protection. It's not for our protection. It's for government control and making sure they can collect a tax dollar on every, uh, every drop of spirit ever distilled. So I do want to point out that any still that uses fermented grain and sugar and things like that to make ethanol, it is the same ethanol that you would make with a traditional moonshine still. What you do with that information is up to you. I just want people to get it through their head that there's not like a still for making ethanol for your car and a still for making moonshine. Do the same thing. How you treat your mash and what you make your mash from and what you're actually fermenting might change because you might really care more about how the end product tastes. But the product itself, the same thing. If you are doing distillation, you might want to learn what heads and tails are, and I'll leave it at that, because I don't want to lead anybody in the wrong direction. I'm just saying that we live in a society where everything could fall apart one day. And having the capability to do something in the future is not the same as having uh, the tendency to do it presently. So just like there's people out there that, for instance, own a ham radio, okay, 
and might play with it a little bit just to understand how it works, but they don't want a ham license, they don't have a call sign, and they have no intentions of using it on a day-to-day -day basis. And I know you hams are going to tell me, that's not a good idea because you won't be an expert, I understand. But there's people that would do that, that say, you know what, if we're ever in a situation where it's an emergency, damn the regulations, I'm going to use it. Just saying that maybe that applies to more things than just ham radio. Let's take another one. All right, last one on a happy note, because it's about cooking and making delicious things, which I always love, and it will leave everybody with a, uh, hopefully a better taste in their mouth than some of the things our government is doing, uh, like building yet another list that's just simply not necessary. So Matthew in Georgia says, how do you make chipotle peppers? I know chipotle peppers are smoked jalapenos. Is smoking peppers like meat, how do you do it? And do we have and do we have to have the adobe sauce? No, adobe sauce is not necessarily uh, having anything to do with just basic chipotle. Uh, chipotle is basically smoked, dried uh, jalapeno ground into a smoked jalapeno powder. Now, to do true chipotle, your peppers need to be red. You want red jalapenos, which means you're probably going to have to grow them. I've never seen red jalapenos for sale. You could do this with like Fresnos or another type of pepper, but it wouldn't be true chipotle. True chipotle is from jalapeno. Um, and what you basically want to do is smoke without direct heat. Generally what's done is the peppers are smoked whole and several slits are cut into them, and they're smoked for up to 16 hours until they dry and get hard and brown. And then you grind them up. Uh, you, if you haven't removed the stem, at that point you would remove the stem, and you grind them into a smoked powder, and you use the chipotle powder in your cooking and for various other things. A uh, teaspoon of that into a nice mix with, uh, with like chicken wings and grilled is phenomenal, and people really won't do just a little bit of it mixed in with your, you know, whatever you do for chicken wings. Who's like, what? There's a hot, there's a smoky, you can't quite figure it out. You can put it more up front. It's a cool thing to cook, but there's a lot of things you can do with Chipotle beyond just making things like, uh, what is the thing with pork that uh, is pretty awesome? Uh, carnitas, right? So that's a typical application is making pork carnitas using Chipotle. Uh, there's a lot of stuff we can do with it. So that's a typical way to do it. I've had problems with that. And what I mean by that is I've smoked and smoked and smoked and smoked, and you get a ridiculous amount of smoke into the pepper, and sometimes they don't get fully dried out. I would think the traditional way was probably by hanging the peppers up over a smoky fire uh, to keep them from becoming, keep them from getting, uh, what do you call like, um, like, like rotting, and keep them from getting insects on them as they rot. So you get the smoke, keep everything dry, and they're probably not as smoked as heavily as putting them in like a side box smoker. And if you're going to do this with your peppers, you know, please cook something while you're at it because it's an awful lot of fuel just to smoke some jalapenos. And unless you're going to go into business selling this stuff, a little goes along way so you don't need to do that many a couple dozen maybe three or four dozen is a lot and if you're on a sidebox smoker that leaves a lot of room so here's the way that i found much better results from it cut the peppers in half don't just cut slits them they'll dry better smoke them for about i'd say four to six hours and throw them in a dehydrator You've got plenty of smoke flavor in there. Dehydrate them in a dehydrator after that. And I think you'll get much closer to a traditional Chipotle. Um, and if you have like a solar vegetable dehydrator, there's no reason you couldn't use that at that stage either. So, you know, that's it. I've often thought about screwing around with building a smoky fire and hanging them from a string above the, you know, and letting nature take its course at that point. But it seems like a lot of work. It seems like something you would do on a very large scale, not a small scale. So for now, the way when I want to make Chipotles myself, Uh, I'll do that simply with a, with a four to six hour smoke, 
Maybe throw a couple chickens next to them because they, you know, you're using the fuel for something more than just the jalapenos. Uh, dehydrate. The big thing is you want to dehydrate these things so they're brittle. Uh, when you break a couple pieces up, and I use a coffee grinder uh, to, uh, to grind my pepper powder. When you put that in there, you want it to grind, not make a paste. So you want it really, really dry. If you want your chipotle traditional and hot, leave the seeds in. If you want a mild chipotle, de-seed. And there's nothing wrong with doing, let's say, two dozen or three dozen jalapenos seeded and the same number de-seeded and having a hot and a mild, which will still be pretty spicy, and then being able to make a blend. In fact, my pepper powders, I love to make blends. I'll grow one or two habanero plants a year, more habaneros than I need. Most of the habaneros get turned into a pepper powder. Uh, I like to grow anchos. I like to grow a lot of different chilies. Uh, this year, not so much. Uh, late establishment, moving into a new place and all. I won't have the peppers I usually do, but I will by next year. But I like to grow lots of different peppers, and there's no reason you can't go to farmer's markets and things like that and buy them and do this as well. Dehydrate peppers in, and put them into um, into a coffee grinder. You can make some really interesting pepper blends. And you can do some things like, you know, cut up and make some just red pepper powder from a sweet red pepper and use a little bit of that and a little bit of a hot and a little bit of garlic powder and make some interesting blends. It's And it can, you can get really creative with your cooking that way. I had a question from somebody at the Expo, the Self-Reliance Festival, and it was, how do I make biltong without black pepper? And I thought, why not just use take some jalapenos or some other chili? Uh, maybe if you want to go a little bit milder, use something like an ancho. Or a hatch, you know, Anaheim, something like that. Uh, Deseed it, uh, dehydrate it, and you know, make a more of a pepper, like a coarse ground uh, pepper powder out of it, and use that instead of black pepper. Because this person didn't mind the spice of the black pepper, there was an allergic issue there. So there's a lot of creativity you can get with pepper powders and ground pepper. Uh, hopefully this has been a good show. Hopefully I didn't tweak out too much. But if you're not upset over some of the things that are going on, again, check your polls. But with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. Like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
energia 